Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Wow, we've hit 40 episodes. Maybe a bit slower than expected to get to the 40 than planned, but alas, we are here. Yes, work has been great, busy, and life has been amazing though, really. I've been having a fantastic time, but hopefully I can make it even better by getting more content out. But where were we? Ah, yes. Huo Guang, the undisputed best regent to date, finally exited the stage. He himself may have had small ups and downs, but overall, he had proven himself to be indisposable. He was simply, pardon the simplistic terminology, but he was the man. Plain and simple. But not all was well behind the curtains. Huo Guang's family may have been set for generations to come due to Huo Guang's amazing work, but foresight and a rational mindset, mm, those seemed to evade his wife, who just had to be the mom of the empress. No one knew of her little tricks there with the nurse to dispose of the last empress, but ah, the lies always come out. And as I mentioned last time, after Huo Guang's death, the rumor mill began to churn slowly, then a little less slowly, and you can imagine where this goes. So, without further ado, The History of China, Episode 40, Emperor Shen and the Rumors. Okay, I have done a good job, I feel so far, in questioning the sources. This period of time is hard. It's not like this Xia or Shang dynasty where things were just clearly invented or intertwined with mythology where you can point and say, ah, that's nonsense. No, this is real history, backed by archeological findings as well as surviving government documents that act as receipts to the sometimes outlandish claims, it would seem, of those ancient historians in the Han Dynasty. However, I always do try and walk a thin line here on this show. I tell you what was said and point out any blatant biases or physically impossible claims that there might be. Though on the flip side, we can't always disprove them. This is the only history for these events that we have at some level. We have to believe it somewhat or close to face value because that's all we have. So before I get into this story, let me give a quick disclaimer. I'm going to talk as if the history I am telling you is corroborated and backed up. It is not. There is a lot of hearsay. So whenever you hear the word rumor in ancient times, you can imagine how potentially slippery of a slope we're going to be on. Rumors now are hard to prove. Imagine trying to prove or disprove a rumor thousands of years ago. Yeah, well, let's just get into it. After Huo Guang died, a rumor began to make the rounds. Huo Guang's wife poisoned the first empress. She did it. Ah... Everything I told you last week about that plan was the rumor reinserted into the historical timeline, just as it was into the Chronicles. And let me repeat that. 
the story I told last week about the nurse being told to poison, that was the rumor. That was added in after the fact. That's some hindsight historians there. This was not written at the time. This was reinserted into the timeline by Han Dynasty historians. So, oh my, you can see where this gets like a little weird. Because at the time that the event actually happened, everybody just assumed that, well, the consort empress dying in childbirth was probably a natural accident. And in reality, the consort empress dying in childbirth could have been like an actual accident that really happened. I'm not trying to poke holes in the story because I have no counter evidence to this. But an evil mother who is greedy, I mean, it's almost like a global and historically timeless trope. Ancient Rome had their Drusillas and their Livias. Disney had their Lady Tremaine. I mean, literally, come on. A patriarchal society coming up with an evil mother plot. We just heard this from the Empress Lu horror show. It's real to an extent, but again, how much of it is embellished? Just know, we'll never know. But I'll leave my stipulation there, because all that matters is, well, she then goes and actually one-ups herself, even one-ups the rumors that have been floating around. In 67 BC, Emperor Shen went and got further in the way of Huo Guang's wife's plans when he made his first son, Prince Shur, the late empress's son, crown prince, and made the consort's father a marquis finally. An action that, as we know, Guan himself had actually opposed, and that had some real reasoning behind it. So yeah, Emperor Shren went and named the first wife's kid the crown prince, made the father-in-law a marquis, and you can be safe in assuming that, yeah, Huo Guang's wife is pretty pissed off. She went through all of that and he's still going to go along with it? Mm -mm. Because look, essentially, if her daughter, the Empress, had a son, he would not be crown prince and that was just not going to fly. And she's going to up the ante, Lady Macbeth style. Because she instructs her daughter, the current Empress, to murder the crown prince. Yeah, things are about to go exactly how they sound. So, the Empress actually agrees with her deranged mom. And according to the histories, she actually did make multiple attempts to kill him, but failed every time. Though as she continued to fail, the old plot began to come to the light. Because Emperor Shren began to hear the rumors that his consort queen and empress was murdered by Huo Guang's wife. Uh-oh. And the clock is ticking now for the Huo is still alive. Because that rumor wasn't met with deaf ears. It was met with some action as Emperor Shren began walking the thin line of removing literal powers from the Huo clan without removing their titles per se. He could not just start a political cold war with the Huas off just a rumor, but he could begin to move pieces around to protect himself and to give himself better footing to act should more evidence come through, just sort of an insurance policy. And in 66 BC, it all kicked off as according to the Chronicles, Huo Guang's wife 
admitted to her son and her grandnephews that the rumors that they were hearing across the dynasty were 100% true. Boom. Though this was a private revelation, she only told those people within her clan. And how this story is known in the first place is obviously a big question mark to our modern brains. How are they so sure that this private thing happened? Well, yeah, it's all we have to go off of. I'm sure there was some witnesses, first or second degree, but yeah, back of your mind. Keep it in there. Moving on. After being told this by Hua Guang's wife, the Huas realized the ramifications of, well, what happens if evidence one day appeared? All the titles, power, and prestige that they had been so recently granted would not only be ripped away, I mean, they will probably be all killed, put to the sword, or, yeah, worse. So what do you do? Try to cover up your tracks more? Address and deny the rumors outright? Nope. They went for the act-first policy. Because the whores that heard this from Hua Guang's wife opted to depose the emperor entirely. Yeah, that's... Mm, a bit extreme. But you know what? Backs against the wall, a cornered animal's gonna fight harder. Though, like most conspiracies throughout all of history, there's a reason why we call it a conspiracy. Because someone snitched, the plot was unfolded, and the Huas played Emperor Xuan's hand for him. You were afraid of him executing you? Well, guess what? Now you've guaranteed that. Congratulations. You played yourself. Emperor Xuan put the entire clan to the sword. The entire clan. Not just the ones that were in the conspiracy. He put them all to death. And the only one spared death was the Empress herself. But she was deposed immediately. And then about a decade or so later, she would be exiled, where in which she killed herself. Historians then, and even now, debate this punishment's logic. On one hand, you had a clear plot against the emperor. That is an undebatable death sentence. Sure, we know that. However, the whole clan? That is where things get a little murky. Because as we know from the Lua clan and other collective punishments doled out to clans in the past, this is not entirely unheard of. Clans have been fully wiped out for treason. We know this. What makes it murky is in regards to its deference to Huo Guan himself, one of the most respected officials ever in ancient China. Was that a fair punishment? It wasn't unprecedented, again, by any means. And Huo Guang's reputation remained entirely intact. And even Emperor Shen would continue to venerate him. Though, yet and still... The whole clan? The whole entirety of it? I don't know. I'm torn. Email me what you guys think. But that leaves us now with just the Emperor and the Han Dynasty. The Huas are gone, whether you agree that's good or not. While the punishment that he doled out to the Huas could have been viewed as too harsh by some, that was not actually indicative of his reign after that event. He continued the seemingly habitual Han Dynasty policy of promoting the best people to the best positions and having officials who actually cared for the people that they were governing. 
I know that seems not that crazy to us, but it's pretty novel for the ancient world. As seen with his legitimate respect for the opinions of officials like Huo Guang, Emperor Shen was very keen on listening to his generals and officials. We saw it with Huo Guang, and I know Huo Guang was the best, but he would continue to seek out advice. Look, he wouldn't let them walk all over him or make the final calls, but he was very good at hearing his people out, as he knew that they were all experts for their respective fields and issues. He would be kind, but yes, according to the histories, he would still make the firm decisions. It was, at the end of the day, it was Emperor Shen making the calls. And sometimes he would go against the advice. Though again, it would be through kind and open conversation, and it appears officials could speak their mind, which is always conducive to generally better strategy. Yeah, they might butt heads, but a productive conversation and mutual understanding usually leads to a plan that takes the best aspects of both sides of the argument. Now, one thing Emperor Shen did in the post-Huo clan period was continue to strengthen the relationship with the Xi Yu kingdoms. We've heard of them, the kingdoms to the west and modern-day northwest China. While not an incorporated region of the dynasty per se, the Xi Yu kingdom's vassalship was paramount. They were next to some pretty big enemies, they were on the trade routes, and so getting their vassalship and getting them to stay in that system was exceedingly important. Better trade with them, more communication, better treatment of them, etc. All of those were Emperor Xuan's policies, and they helped foster a continually better relationship with the Xi Yu kingdoms, which in turn, and this is the little Machiavellian aspect of it, would make it one day easier to assimilate and absorb them into the Han Dynasty. But we are not there yet, don't worry. And I did say this, but his ability to listen was not just some made-up story by his own biased biographer that happened to make it to us today. No. There are a plethora of examples, whether that be under Huo Guang, but I don't want to give one under Huo Guang. I'll give you a new one. In 62 to 60 BC, General Zhao Chongguo was tasked with pacifying the Qiang tribes, some of which were literally rebelling and some of which were looking at the rebellion and saying, well, if this keeps going well, maybe we'll join. And his mission, which was ordered by Emperor Xuan himself, was one of annihilation. A ton of generals and Emperor Xuan himself supported the policy. Full stop. Annihilate them all. You step to the best, you're going to die like the rest. But mmm, there was one dissenter. Zhao Chongguo, the guy who was tasked with doing it, was against it. Instead, he wrote to Emperor Xuan advocating instead of annihilation for a policy of strength, sure, but also understanding. He said, look, you can avoid unnecessary bloodshed by simply treating the tribes better, assimilating them, and sure, creating military outposts there so that there was a Han response force ready in case there was a another rebellion. We'll make them happy, but if they stand up, we'll have soldiers there. That was the policy, instead of genocide, or annihilation, whatever you want to call it. And guess what? The emperor agreed. He said that's a logical and understanding policy, and just like that, that's what the new policy against the Qiang was. And do you know what the best part of the whole thing is? It worked. 
the Chiang tribes were pacified and didn't rebel like that for a very long time, if ever again. By 61 BC, Emperor Zhao had, let's just call it what it is, a middle schooler level phase into magic. You know, immortality, shamans, ah, uh, yes, our, our good old favorite little uh, sidetrack for the emperors. We've had some emperors go real deep into this, but I call it a middle schoolers level phase because just like dubstep in 2010, it existed for like nine months and then fell off the face of the earth. Unlike Emperor Wu, Emperor Shen got into magic for a little bit, but then gave up on it well before it consumed him. Dipped his toes into it, said, mm, this isn't for me, this seems kind of silly. And so, good for you, Emperor Shen, learning from your elders' mistakes. So don't worry, guys, we are not diving into another witch hunt. Yet, there'll probably be another one soon, so get excited. Though you're probably all wondering, whatever happened to Emperor Shen's wife, Empress, or should I say, and his crown prince? I mean, whatever happened to that situation? Well, Emperor Shen did indeed look for a new empress. He was, of course, a bit shaken up by the whole first empress being killed, and then his next empress trying to kill his son and crown prince, and then his empress's family trying to depose him. Yeah, there's a lot that he's got on his mind now. So, of course, he opts for the path of least resistance. He installed an empress who did not have sons of her own, who was kind, gentle, soft, pliable, and wouldn't try to kill his kids. That's a very fair list to have in your head when looking for a spouse. So he brought up Consort Wang, who, may I say, was actually not one of his favorites. And he made her empress and had her raise the crown prince as her own. It was a safe and politically savvy play. He gave up the idea of making his potentially favorite consort empress and instead went for a play that was politically safe, that made sure his dynasty was kept intact, and made sure that his crown prince from his original first love was not going to be threatened. He's a smart guy. But besides all that, honestly... Things for the Han Dynasty just sort of chugged along. As his reign progressed, Emperor Shen began to be less micromanaging. According to the Chronicles, he began to enjoy the finer things in life a little bit more. Look, he didn't go totally soft, but he began to eat a little more and live a little better. And this is all comparatively, because even at his most luxurious, he was still relatively, compared to all the other emperors who lived luxuriously, he was still really frugal. But yeah, he began to appreciate the fruits of his labor and the good things that his dynasty could bring him. And even with this more hands-off approach, and look, that's only to a limited extent as well. He never took his hands off the wheel fully and just let his officials run the state. Because he continued to rule with the same moral and policy viewpoints that he had before. He listened to his generals, and he always had the people's well-being in his heart. Thus, he rarely engaged in military conflict unless it was fully needed. And to that point, again, this wasn't out of weakness. He wasn't avoiding conflict because he was weak and couldn't make decisions. No. And to that point, again, Emperor Shren would be decisive and stern when needed, but he had a good gauge on when something would be overkill or, or bad for his people in the long term or short term. 
He wanted to find the thriftiest and most savviest way to get the most out of every situation. And one such example occurred in 59 BC. Because in 59 BC, the Xiongnu were engaging in a civil war. I told you, they're not always one big happy family there. And obviously, many in the Han Dynasty saw this civil war within the Xiongnu as a chance to once and for all annihilate them. And I know I keep using the word annihilate today, it's the word of the day it seems. But that would only do a couple things. Engaging the Xiongnu during their civil war would 100% guarantee the financial coffers would be drained, it would cost economic productivity because workers would be fighting and obviously not working, and the biggest one, it would cost lives and time and food, and it could even potentially result in a freak defeat, though the defeat side is not really what they were worried about. Emperor Xuan has sent forces in before. So, what did Emperor Xuan do? He let them fight each other, wither each other down, and then, when they'd withered each other down enough, he then turned around and encouraged peace among the different Xiongnu factions that had broken apart, with the long-term goal of hoping that they would all submit to him. It's a pretty out-there plan, but man, they did it again because his efforts paid off. Emperor Shen played the savvy political play, and it worked. By 56 BC, the Xiongnu had been fractured into three separate regimes, led by three separate rulers, and all three sought peace with the Han Dynasty. But wait, how does this actually help the Han? The Xiongnu are not exactly known to be good oath keepers, let's just say that at the least. So how does having three probably out of desperation Xiongnu tribes asking for peace, how does that help the Han in the long term? Well, from this peaceful resolution on the Han's part, they were able on their own side to cut their defense forces by one-fifth. Thus, it decreased the burdens that were put on the people through the taxes that were needed to arm, supply, feed, and even man the army. But would this policy actually work in the long term? Because again, sure, you can trust the Xiongnu, you can decrease your army, but it feels a lot like appeasement. But be honest with me, this is not appeasement. This policy actually did work in the long term. Because obviously the Xiongnu were not always going to be three separate factions that were going to love each other, that were going to love each other and sing kumbaya. It's the Xiongnu after all. Someone's going to break it. But it seems like Emperor Xuan played for that. Because in 54 BC, there was a, let's call it a reunification effort within the Xiongnu. And no, this was not a democratic one of mutual understanding. This was because one of the factions was trying to take over all the others by force. One of the three Xiongnu groups that was originally at risk of being taken over came to the Han Dynasty for help. What do you do? Emperor Shren's sitting there and you have a Xiongnu leader asking for help. Do you just twist his arm and make him bow? No. Because realizing that there was a way to further this ploy, Emperor Xuan refused to let this Xiongnu leader bow in front of him. But why? Because 
He wanted the Xiongnu to become vassals, not out of fear and convenience for their own sake, but out of gratitude. Yeah, Emperor Xuan is playing the long game. He doesn't want this Xiongnu guy to come to him, get what he wants, do his little bow, and only submit out of fear. No, he wants him to submit later on out of gratitude, out of saying, you know what? Man, this guy, this guy's really sick. We should actually stay with the Han Dynasty. And guess what? It worked. The Han Dynasty sent a helping force. The threatening Xiongnu branch that was trying to take over was forced away. And the Han were able to add another happy, grateful vassal. And that is just yet another chip off the Xiongnu iceberg that is so far sitting in some hot water. It will not be here for that much longer. Though, as his reign began its twilight phase, and I know, we're plowing through a whole emperor in an episode. Well, look, we gotta get this show on the road a little bit. I apologize. But when his reign was in its twilight phase, in around 52 BC, he became worried that his crown prince, yes, still the son of that first consort, was too reliant on officials for his own decision-making and opinion-making. And before you jump in and say, well, that's a hypocritical because Emperor Shren loves his officials' opinions, there's a difference. Hearing your people out and getting the best research and understanding of a situation is good. But Emperor Shren would still make the decision. He would push back, he would hear their opinions, and they would work through it. The difference is that his son was not like that. Allegedly, his son was allegedly on the let-them-make-his-decisions-for-him kind of boat. So, they're different. And Emperor Shren even thought about moving the crown prince title and giving it to someone else, but given his mother was his first love, and after her tragic death, crown prince sure remained the crown prince. And lastly, one of Emperor Shren's last great moves was that he showed his gratitude to the great people around him. And I know that sounds like the cheesiest, most simple thing I could say, but listen, because in 51 BC, in an unprecedented action for the time, and already going to Hua Guang's funeral was a big deal, he had the portraits of 11 of his best officials and advisors painted onto the main gallery of the main palace of the Han Dynasty. He had his 11 best people, essentially a hall of fame of Emperor Shren's bureaucratic establishment. And the 11 were, and you can guess the first one, Huo Guang, Zhang Anshi, Han Zheng, Zhao Chongguo, the general from earlier, Wei Xiang, Bing Ji, Du Yanyan, Liu De, then there was Liang Qiuhe, then there was Xiao Wang Zhi, and then there was Su Wu. But Huo Guang was referred only by titles and not by name. And you might say, well, wait a minute, he wasn't given his name? No, no, no. Because in ancient China and the Han Dynasty, that was considered an even greater honor than that given to the other ten. You were the title. You were that post. The name wasn't as important. It was your face being that. And hey, Emperor Shen, real, recognized, real. And by his death in 48 BC, whoops, yep, there it is. Emperor Shen dies. Don't worry, it had to happen at some point. 
but you might as well have called Emperor Shen the Trajan of the Han Dynasty, or have called Trajan the Emperor Shen of the Roman Empire. And why? Because by this time, the Western Han Dynasty would reach its peak in terms of territorial size. I know Emperor Wu conquered a lot, but after slowly chipping away at the vassal states and getting the Xiongnu to submit, a little land was added. Nothing was given up by Emperor Shen. Even though he wasn't that militaristic, he even gained. And so this is it. 48 BC marks the end of Emperor Shen, and with that, pretty much the peak of the Western Han Dynasty's size. Doesn't mean peak societally or peak financially necessarily, but this was the biggest it was ever going to get. And I think this is a good place to leave it for now. Remember, rate the show five stars and follow it. And I have some news coming up. I love the history of China and we're going to keep doing it into per, you know, in perpetuity. But I also love other history. And so I'm thinking of getting a little surprise in there soon. I don't know what it'll be yet, but I'm excited to announce it as that idea becomes less of an idea and more of an actual potential show. So thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you all next time on the History of China.